0: As I said earlier, it is great to see you. And if you are a guest, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, It's time for us to jump into God's Word. So if you brought one with you, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 14, if you did not bring um, one with you, there should be a Bible and a seat near you. And if you don't have one at home, please take that home as a gift. But uh, we're in a series, it's called Fully Alive. John wrote this gospel um, uh, several decades after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, and he tells us exactly why. He says, I've written down these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that, that you might have life in his name, full life, abundant life. And so uh, it, it is, uh, it's always a joy to, um, uh, to read this book because it's written with our best intent. And so I want to ask you, if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, as we open up your word this morning, we pray. That it would come alive to our hearts. What a passage that many of us have read, perhaps several times. We we pray, God, that you would um, give fresh color to our hearts as we read. We thank you for the promise, Lord, uh, Lord, the promises that we see in this that are specifically anchored uh, to to fight worry and a troubled heart. And I pray for those in the room uh, who whose heart, uh, even this morning, is shaken, it's troubled, as well as for those in the room uh, who will uh, walk through something this next week or this next month that will trouble their heart, that you would use this text, God, to teach us, uh, to comfort us, to give us hope and joy uh, as we walk before you. And so would you be our teacher? Would you speak through weakness? And God, would you give us belief in what we read? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, well, just a little bit more than a year ago just uh, just a few weeks before I became uh, the uh, well before i uh, before I had this job right um, as a senior pastor, uh, I can recall a night or two or maybe even ten something like that um, where I simply couldn 't sleep uh, as as the time was sort of ramping up uh, to make that transition um, um, it, 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 the the uh, the weight of of what it was, uh, and and I suppose that the weight of what I didn't know it was um, uh, kept me up at night. And uh, but on this one night, I uh, tossed and turned, hoping to to think of something that was going to distract me long enough so so that I could finally um, sleep. Um, but that powerful stream of anxious fear just seemed to trickle through my heart. Most of you know what that feels like. All of us, I, uh, I assume, know what that feels like. That, that anxiety, that fear, that kind of starts in the heart, it moves down. You can feel it in your arms. You can feel it in your legs. Um, It's a, it's a, it's a horrifying thing, and it's a powerful thing. And I started to ask questions like, God, what if I fail in front of people whom I love? Or, um, you know, what does this mean for our family? Or, what if Providence goes through a time where we and many other churches face Significant suffering uh, in our in our land, and uh, and because worry and anxiety are not always rational, I also thought things like, what if I'm preaching and those two TVs above my head fall and hit me, or, um, you know, what if I'm at a funeral and I'm and I and I forget and I and I, and I start to you know actually treat it like a wedding or or. Or on a Sunday morning, what happens if I forget my Bible and I can't find one? And, and, you know, all these rational and irrational things um, sort of flooded my mind. And I trust that we're all familiar with the weariness that comes with worry, where we um, spend time anticipating uh, the worst of tomorrow and act as if it's true today. And so after several hours of this, I went downstairs and I opened up God's word and there I was reminded of passages uh, that, were, um, that were of great comfort to me. Psalm 37, 7 and 8, where God says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, and do not fret, for it leads only to evil. Uh, I looked at Matthew chapter 6, where, where I'll read in a bit, where he says, Why don't you look at the birds, and why don't you look at the flowers of the field? I'm going to take care of you. If I take care of these things, I'm going to take care of you. And I also looked at John chapter 14. This is our passage. It starts with the words, let not your hearts be troubled. And you need to understand that even before we can read this, you have to understand sort of the context of what's happening here. This is the night before Jesus is going to die on the cross. So there's a heaviness in his own heart. He's just revealed, unveiled Judas to be a traitor. He's just said that the shepherd is going to be struck and all the sheep, all of these, all of the disciples, that they're going to be scattered. And he's just said that Peter, who was the leader of those disciples, that he would deny Jesus three times before the sun came up. So there's ample reason to be troubled if you're one of these last 11 men at the table with Jesus. And this is what he says to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen Will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we're going to stop there simply because of time, but next week we're going to do this message, part two, right? Because what you find is if you keep looking in John chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. And so we're going to cut him off right in the middle of his message of reasons why you can believe in me and why that belief is effectual to work in your heart so that you don't have to live your days fretting, and anxious and worried about your life. Jesus starts and he simply says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's really important, the word structure there, because he says that you are a decision maker in the process. You're the one who holds the reins. You're not a victim of your heart. You're the controller of your heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. You see, during uncertainty in our life, our hearts are sort of like this picture They're like a team of wild horses that want to run as fast as we possibly can, imagining tomorrow's potential problems and treating them as if they're true today. Sensing that this was what was taking place in the life of his 11 remaining disciples. Jesus says, guys, right now, I need you to grab the reins that are tied to your heart. Don't let it run wild. Even you, Peter, I've just told you that before the night Come, the 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 the, uh, sun rises in the morning. I've already told you that you're going to deny me three times, and even you, Peter, right now, rein your heart in, or it will rein you in. Let not your hearts be troubled. You see, Jesus could understand what it was feel, uh, what it must have felt like. I think to be one of these eleven. I think John has gone through great lengths to show us that he can empathize with us in our troubled hearts. Because three times that we've looked at since chapter 11, we've been told that Jesus has been troubled. Let's look back at him. John chapter 11, verse 33, says that when Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly what? Troubled. Jesus felt troubled. And then in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then John chapter 13, verse 21, says that after Jesus said these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus was familiar with the feeling of heart trouble. But what's interesting is, whereas Jesus' troubled heart was really anchored in his love for us, what he tells us here is by way of the remedy that the biggest problem that we have with our troubled heart is not about love, it's about belief. And that's why he anchors the text with, I need you to believe some things. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And what's the next thing he says? Believe in God and believe also in me. And you get down to verse 11. And he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And so what he shows us throughout this entire chapter after saying, "I, I recognize that your heart is troubled right now. And I recognize that in each one of you, 11 men, it's troubled perhaps in different ways because each one of us is different. Each one of you grew up differently. Each one of you, for some of you, you've never been abandoned or left in your life. But for some of you, maybe you have been. And now you hear me say, I'm going away and you can't come with me. And that brings up all kinds of feelings of what it was like when you were a kid. I recognize it's different among each one of you. And yet I'm telling you, you need to believe me. So what I want to show you is three reasons, right? What must we believe to keep our hearts from being troubled? The first thing is this, is that Jesus gave us promises that he would fulfill. He gave us promises that he would fulfill. He starts, I think it's fascinating. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he he wants to tell us about his dad's house. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So why not worry? Well, because God has a big house and Jesus promised to go there to prepare a place for you and for me. In other words, I think why he says this, of course, this is just one promise among many that he's he's made and that he will make. I think what he's saying is, guys, I recognize that you feel unsettled right now, but you won't be unsettled forever because I've been to heaven and I'm going again. I know where you're going to be settled for all eternity. The certainty of you being settled in my father's house forever and ever and ever should influence your unsettled hearts today in a place where you're not going to be forever. Remember years ago, I was a little little kid at the time, and my dad took my brother and I, and several other dads and lots of other boys down to the Grand Canyon. We went down it. We camped in it for a week. It sounds really cool, right? It really was cool for about three and a half days, and then there was two and a half days left, right? And it was hot and exhausting and uncomfortable. It was still beautiful, but when you've been down there a long time, it you know it it's a big hole, you know, is what it is, and. And you're down at the bottom of it. And, 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 and it was interesting that there were times where just weariness of packing miles a day and just walking as a little kid and thinking, we're never going to get out of here. It was interesting that when I started to find comfort to even help me through the day was the reminder that we have a house. And in a few days, we're going to be back at our house. And this is the same thing of what Jesus is saying. He goes, I recognize your trouble." But you guys are pilgrims in a land. This is not home. These troubles won't last forever. And I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you have a place. And then he says this, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. So notice the focus shifts from a place to a person. You see, heaven is where Jesus is at. He says, I'm going to bring you to be with me. And this is your ultimate treasure. Okay, Heaven is not the treasure of the redeemed. Jesus is the treasure of the redeemed. If Jesus wasn't in heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven. What he's saying is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you to be with me. Because ultimately, I am your greatest treasure. I'm going to return to take you to myself. I'm making you a promise right now, and, and I promise that I can be counted on tomorrow. I know you're going to have to wait a long time, but I will come back. And so I'm asking you to trust me today. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, meaning clothes, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's interesting that Jesus literally tells us to stop reading and to think about a bird. So let's do that, okay? Here's a bird, and there's his lunch. We may look at that and say, that's gross, right? But that represents God's faithfulness right there. God tells us that when you look at this picture, and when you walk around in the morning or at night, and you see birds flying around and they're feeding their young, that that portrait is supposed to teach you and I something about God. And what the birds show us is that the birds do not fret about the day of God's demise. They don't hoard for the day of God's unfaithfulness. No, they teach us that God will be faithful tomorrow so we can trust him today. We can rest today and we can sleep tonight because God will be God tomorrow. And all the promises that he's made to us, they will be fulfilled in our life because of Jesus. And so, Providence, let's fix our minds on the promises of God. Let's fix our minds on the promises of God. I want you to think about your life. This is this is true in your life. It's true in, in my life. Is that worry, anxiety, that fretting feeling, that troubled heart. It boils up in every single area of our life that is detached from Christ's preeminence. And that is why when you start to feel worry surface in your heart and begin to percolate and boil, we must make God king over that area once again. We must yield ourselves to him. This is why the psalmist says this. Psalm 56, verse three says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He doesn't say I'm never afraid. He says that when fear begins to surface in my heart, it's proof that I'm not trusting God in that area. It's proof that, that, that anxiety is boiling up in this area. And so that is the marker. That's the alarm clock that God has given me to say, now it's the time to come back under my hand Under my preeminence in that area of your life, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's your children, whether it's your marriage, whatever it is. When I'm afraid, all right, now it's time to put my trust in the Lord. You see, if your windshield is like this windshield and it's splattered with mud and you simply can't see out of it, you and I don't decide at that moment that now's the time to sell the car. No, what we do is we stop and we wipe off the windshield. It's the same thing with anxiety. When mud splatters up and you become anxious about a big decision that you have to make and the windshield is unclear, right you you can't look through it to like to really be able to see that's when you have to stop and you got to pour water over the windshield you have to remove the anxiety by saying you know what god made a promise in psalm 32 verse 8 god said i will instruct you and teach you the way you should go god The creator of the universe, the author of truth, has promised that if I'll yield myself to him and not lean on my own understanding, he's going to direct my paths. He made a promise to do that. And so I don't need to worry about that decision that I need to make two days from now. I need to think about it and I need to make him king over it and say, God, I just want your will to be done. You've promised to make it clear. When you become anxious about aging, most of us do in life at some point in time. You need to remember Isaiah 64, verse four says, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. Praise God for the gray hairs, right? When anxiousness, fretting begins to surface in your heart because of past sin in your life and you start thinking about what you've done, You think, man, has God really forgiven me for those things? And all of a sudden, your windshield, it's all blurry again. And you don't feel like you can go forward or backwards because you don't feel like you can see. Because all you can think about and all you can feel is some past regret. That's when you need to remember the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Jesus says, where God says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us of what Jesus had taught him, and that is that his sins have been forgiven then there's no condemnation in Christ. And guys, this is the importance of reading your Bible. We started this year with a plea that if you don't have a plan to read your Bible, there's a Bible reading plan. And you see the importance of that Bible reading plan is in one calendar year, you will actually read every promise that God has made that he says, I will be faithful to this promise in your life. If you don't know what those promises are though, then you are bound to live with a troubled heart. Even this morning, If you're up to date, right, if you're up to date, you read Exodus 1, 2, and 3. That passage has probably had more impact on my life than maybe any other passage, because that's the passage where when I had a speech impediment, God called me on a mission trip. I said, I can't go. I can't do this. I can't preach a sermon. And God tells Moses in that passage, who made your mouth? Was it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will show you what to say, and I hope you say it. We read that. Well, see, that that, that became incredibly important for me because to me, at that moment in my life, I had to make a decision. Is God going to be the king over that area of my life, or am I going to be the king? You see, every time you and I are a king over an area of our life, we worry about that area of our life. And so I just said, God, I'm going to do it. And God did a miracle in my life, so much so that look what's happening right now. That would not have happened without belief in a promise of God. And it can happen in your life too. He wants it to. And so we can not be troubled by believing that Jesus gave us promises that he will fulfill. The second thing, thing that we need to believe is that Jesus gave us the way to God that he is guaranteed. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. You have to remember that as Jesus spoke these words, all the obstacles between them and the father had not yet been removed. Death had not been defeated. Sin had not yet been atoned for. Jesus still had to go. And so he says, I'm going to prepare a place, which is why he then says, and you know where I'm going. Why does he say that? Because he just told them. He says, my father's house has many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And you know where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. In other words, what he's saying to us and what he was saying to them is I'm going to prepare the way for you to be able to get home. And I am the truth that you're going to hold on to in order to get there. And I am the life that you are going to enjoy forever when you arrive there. And then all of a sudden, Philip needs to speak. And Philip's words represent every single one of us who has been a recipient of a broken promise. Have you ever noticed how much of life is, um, is laced with a lack of trust since the fall. I want you to think about these things just for a second, right? When you, when you buy a house and you go in for a mortgage, you don't just go with a handshake and say, you know, I promise I'll pay you back for this. No, they cut a tree down, make a ream of paper and give you four pens and say, it's probably gonna take you all that ink to sign everything that we want you to sign because we don't believe you. So we're gonna actually create all of this paperwork You see, in the Garden of Eden, had mankind never sinned, we wouldn't be cutting down trees to verify our reliability. But they know that people have said that I'm going to pay something back, and they didn't. Think about a receipt. You buy something and you want to take it back, and they they have a policy, don't they? And the policy says, with a receipt within so many days. Think about what it would have been like if there'd been no sin. You buy a shirt. The meals are always great, so it doesn't fit, right? You think, you know, I want to take the shirt back. So you take it back. And they don't say, are you sure you bought it here? Of course I bought it here. It's just absolute truthfulness, but now that's not the case. So now what we have to do is we have a receipt. You see, every single one of these things, they're markers that we live in a world that we don't always keep our word. Just this week, we saw a man, our 45th president, right? Here's a picture of it, right? For some of you right now, right, your heart went one way or the other with that, okay? And I wanna take just a moment just to come out of the sermon, just to say one sentence. Take all of the emotion of whatever you were feeling and pray to God for grace, whether you're happy or whether you're burdened, okay? Now let's get back in the sermon. Notice, hold on. <laughs> Notice where his left hand is. Why is it on a Bible? Well, it's because it's what we do. Why do we do that? Because what we're saying is, and everyone, all you, you can actually go back and see portraits of George Washington with his hand on a Bible. You go to court and you gotta put a hand on a Bible. Why do we do that? What we're saying is, I don't know if I can trust you, but if you're telling me that you're going to promise to tell the truth and if all the curses of what it says within this book would fall upon the person that it's not truthful. It's leverage, you see. Now, let's get back to what he says. Philip says this. Philip needs some leverage. He says, Jesus, this... You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're saying this, but we need proof of purchase here. So he says, I'll tell you what, just show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You say you can get me to the Father. I'll tell you what, you show me the Father, and I'll believe. I won't be troubled tonight. (laughs) Jesus, eternity's at stake. We need some guarantee an amazing thing that he says to him on this night. And likely wounded in his own heart, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? And then six different times in the next four verses, Jesus says something that correlates to whoever has seen me has seen the father. Verse seven, if you've known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. In other words, what Jesus says to Philip is this. He says, Philip, I know this mystifies your mind, but I am with God and I am God. This is what we learned in the first verse in John. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He says, I know this mystifies your mind, but I'm the second member of the Trinity. My father, my spirit and me, we all make up one God. I created you. I sustain you. I will be your final judge at the end. You want a guarantee? I'm your guarantee. And my blood tomorrow night will serve as my proof of purchase over your life. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. He validates them. He guarantees them. And so let's, as a family, trust Christ and his promises. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, we want to exhort you as a church family. Is there any reason why you would not at this moment turn from your sin and say, God, I I can't do this on my own, but I believe in Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who died for your sin and for my sin. He was buried in a grave and then he rose from the dead. You see, for you and for me, we all have a debt with God that we can't pay off. And so God sent his son to pay that debt for you and for me. And for those of us who do know Christ. Christ says that I'm the guarantee of all God's promises. The reason is because I'm God. I made all those promises. So if you're troubled in your heart today. believe. I'm going to get you home. You got to believe me. Let your hearts rest. The third thing I think that Jesus wants us to believe in order for our hearts not to be troubled is this, is that Jesus gave us a ministry that he will empower. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So immediately... You need to put aside any thinking that says, well, this is for the super spiritual Christians. This is for the missionaries in the bunch. This is for the pastors and the theologians. No, Jesus says, whoever believes in me. Do you believe in Jesus? Then you will be able to do the works that Jesus has done. It's for all of us. And you say, well, what works works? are those? Well, there's a connection you see between verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 11, Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And then verse 12 says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And so in two verses, he talks about believing and he talks about certain works that help people to believe. And ultimately, this is what Jesus is going to give us to do. And what he has given us to do is just as Jesus did works to help people believe. So we will do works that will lead people to believe. This is what he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus takes it a step further And he says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Well, Jesus said, fed 5,000 families. So does this mean that we're gonna miraculously feed 5,001? Well, probably not. So what does it mean? Well, think about this. Up until this point, all of Jesus' ministry that we've seen has happened before the cross where the ransom was promised and not yet actually delivered. But now you and I, after Christ, we have a message to preach, not about a promised ransom, a promised savior, but a faithful, fulfilled ransom and savior. And so the message that we have is not one necessarily of looking forward, but looking back to say, he's already done it. He's already accomplished it. And then he says, I'm going to go to the father. Now, I'm going to kind of cheat and just borrow just a few thoughts from next week. In verse 15, he's going to say, when I leave, I'm going to send my spirit to you. And this will be ultimately to your great advantage. Because whereas I have been walking with you through Judea. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to walk in you. That instead of just being near me, I will be in you. That all of my power will now be on display in your life. And furthermore, I've spent my entire ministry in Judea and in Israel. But I'm going to call you to the ends of the earth. You see, but just like a general that's sending out troops, knowing that we need power and knowing that we need some source of good communication, like an army walkie-talkie that can say, listen, we're here, we're under fire, we're in the ministry, we're We're on the field and yet we really need an airstrike. And so can you please drop some bombs over here, right? Just to free us up. He says, I'm going to give you this thing called prayer. I'm going to allow you to be able to call upon me at any time. And talk to me. And tell me what you need for this ministry. So he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the context here, right, is not, well, if I want a boat, I'm going to ask for a boat. He's promised to give me a boat. What he's saying is, As you seek to carry on my work in the world, as you seek to live in love, share the gospel, he says, Then pray to the Father in my name, and you will have all that you need for the ministry that I give you to do. So, Providence, let's ask God to vindicate his honor in our ministry. Let's ask God to vindicate his honor in our ministry. I'm almost done, but this point is really important. Because for some of you, you pray and you don't see the value necessarily to anchor or to leverage like God moving because you're so worthwhile or because your kids are so worthwhile or because this church is so worthwhile. And so sometimes maybe you, like me, we don't know necessarily what to pray. But notice the reason that Jesus says of why he's going to be answering prayers for the ministry. He says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so as I pray, I'm often hesitant to leverage my value or the value of my kids or my wife or even us as a church family in order to ask God to do something. Right? Because sometimes I'm like, God, I mean, I know I'm not like worth, like, like you're, you're, you're the worthy one. And so how do I ask God to do amazing things when I know that I'm not the center of the universe? And what you find within the scriptures is the saints of old are leveraging their prayers against God's passion for his glory. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, we find an amazing little example. He prays, God, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. And what he's saying is this, is that as we, his children, as a church, our families, you and I, we're all tied to the glory of God. And so people formulate thoughts and conclusions about God when they look at us. And so when your heart is burdened and heavy and you long for God to move in power, and yet you don't think that you're necessarily worthwhile and all the things that God's doing in the world, that he should come and intervene in your life, that I would encourage you and us as a church family to pray like Daniel prayed when he says, oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, would you forgive? Oh Lord, hear and act. For your sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. For your commitment to your glory that's attached and stapled to our our family or to my kids or to this church, would you in mercy act so that you would be glorified. And even as we prepare to finish and to take an offering, I think it's fitting to think of God's honor You see, over the last year, we put before you, the church family, a mission that's big enough that it required a pretty substantial amount of resources. And we prayed this prayer for God to move for his glory in our midst. I just want you to know that he has moved in our hearts. And I am so grateful. We are grateful to God. We're grateful to you. This week, we'll be sending out, I don't know if you're going to get it this week, but we'll be sending out. Sort of a detailed letter of your generosity, but, but even more important, I think, is to show you some of the ways that God has used your generosity to impact people for Christ around the world. Now, I don't know what anybody at Providence gives except for our family, but I do know that together we gave everything that we needed for what God called us to do. And so it's really remarkable and it's fitting for us to say thank you to God. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that you have been amazing to us. We ask that you would vindicate the honor of your name in providing the resources to do what you've called us to do. And you've done that. And so we give you the praise. We thank you, God, that our hearts do not need to be troubled because you are faithful forever. We're grateful, God, that we can sing to you now and give to you because you're worthy of it. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.